we're hoping for with this book as well is to kind of give librarians and library staff those social work inspired skills and practices. Welcome to another episode of FYI, the Public Libraries podcast. I'm Kathleen Hughes with the Public Library Association. Today, we'll be talking with two members of the PLA Social Worker Task Force about the group's new book, A Trauma-Informed Framework for Supporting Patrons, the PLA Workbook of Best Practices, and the related pre-conference program, which will be held at the PLA 2022 conference in March. Our guests are Deborah Walsh-Kane and Margaret Ann Powell. Deborah Walsh-Kane, LCSW, came to Library Social Work in 2018 after working in community health for much of her career. She was the first library social worker hired by the Jefferson County, Colorado Public Library. She earned her MSW at the University of Illinois. Margaret Ann Powell is a licensed clinical social worker practicing library social work at the Chicago Public Library. She is currently working on getting her PhD in social work from Loyola University, Chicago with her dissertation topic on library social work programs across the United States. For our listeners who may not know, Deborah, can you talk about the field of public library social work? Why is it needed and what does a public library social worker do? So library social work is a relatively new specialty within the social work field, and it started about 11 years ago in San Francisco. The idea behind it is that we know that public libraries in particular have increasingly become spaces where everyone is welcome And what that means is that as other social safety nets have fallen away, there's a a greater diversity of the patrons that libraries are supporting, which includes people experiencing life challenges like homelessness, mental health issues, and substance misuse issues, among many other challenges. Libraries have found that library degrees don't often prepare librarians to deal with kind of those exceptional social issues that we are increasingly seeing in public libraries. And so have partnered with social workers, either by hiring them themselves or bringing in social workers through other grants or other community organizations, library social workers are able to provide a little more comprehensive support to patrons experiencing life challenges and get them connected to resources and help walk them through the really complicated social safety net insofar as it exists. And so that has been a real benefit to both the library patrons themselves and also libraries of of having an additional really kind of expert resource in-house to help navigate some of those patron issues and questions that might come up. And Margaret, Ann, did you have anything you want to add to that? We do individual one-on-one stuff with library patrons, help connect to resources, stuff like that. And then the more mezzo stuff where we're helping library staff, maybe we're providing trainings and showing library staff how to navigate resources as well for library patrons. Most of us, you know, are just one or two of us in a whole library system, so we can't be everywhere all the time. And that's part of what we're hoping for with this book as well, is to kind of give librarians and library staff those social work inspired skills and practices. I think that most programs have a blend of that individual patron support, library staff support. And then some of us are positioned where we're helping make more macro changes within library systems. Some of us are called in by library administration to help restructure and reorganize their approach to patron services or some libraries even have kind of like a social services department or directive for their strategic plan or something like that that we're called in to kind of help with. And we do a lot of community outreach. That's what we bring as well. Our kind of flair of community outreach is more social service focused or community focused on things like that, kind of what uh, Deborah was saying earlier with specific populations, like people experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity, food insecurity, stuff like that. 
a lot of us do build up relationships with other community-based organizations to do a warm handoff or even just be aware of all of the services that other Mm -hmm. organizations in the area are providing. Let's talk about the book, A Trauma-Informed Framework for Supporting Patrons. The intro puts it right out there, kind of. There are no easy answers. You talk about why this book doesn't offer a formula and why that is really an impossibility. Kathleen, this is Deborah, and I'll try to answer this question. When it comes to interacting with human beings in any capacity, there's never a, if you do this, this time in this way, it's always going to work. There's a group of approaches that we can try to use that might decrease the impacts of trauma, mitigate re-traumatization, really help a a patron feel comfortable. But there's never going to be a, if you do this, then this is exactly what's going to happen because people are too complex for that. And trauma itself is way too complex for that as well. And so what the book tries to do is to acknowledge that we wish there was that easy If X, Y, Z, then everything will be great. But it really kind of suggests that's not the reality that we live in. And given that, therefore, we have this group of tools that we can use. I think that was really well said, Deborah. Humans are very complex. The environments that they live in are very complex. It's really hard to be thrown into a situation with someone and be like, I don't know what to do. We're trying to offer some kind of at least like guidance or some kind of best practices. We're really focused on the trauma-informed lens and also how do we approach patron interactions with empathy and understanding and care versus what am I going to do about this? How can we really approach in those kind of ways? this book is full of information that will help people to feel empowered. Having the ability to like come back and be like, all right, let me take a step back, reflect on what I did. Maybe I'll review the practices again or review the book again and just keep practicing. A lot of trial and error, really. Would one of you want to explain what is trauma and what is a trauma-informed lens? Our conception of trauma in this book, at least, is the quote-unquote like bad stuff that can happen to us throughout our lives. And it really can happen to anybody. The more obvious answer for what is trauma is trauma is the bad stuff that happens that sort of changes how we view the world and how we engage with the world. Trauma can be getting hit by a car. It can be surviving illness when there's a big scary incident that can involve violence or death in your community, in your home, whatever that can look like. We really understand that that is trauma and society has come a long way with understanding. Yes, we know that those experiences can really impact how someone thinks and behaves in the world. What we offer in this book is a a bit more of an expansive definition. And so what we're suggesting is that Trauma can also encapsulate different adversity that people will experience. And so it can be being a person of color in our white supremacist society where day after day after day, moment after moment, you are subjected to adversity based on the color of your skin and how that effect over your life can cumulatively result in a trauma experience where your interaction with society and the world and how you think is absolutely shaped by those ongoing negative experiences. And so we look at kind of the big trauma in the book, we call it timeline trauma, where, you know, it's the car accident that you can mark on a calendar. And we also talk about timeless trauma, where it's those ongoing experiences, because it can still have the same impact on how you think and view the world. And so I'll hand it over to Margaret Ann to talk a little bit about what a trauma-informed lens looks like in that context. Thanks, Deborah. Basically, with the trauma-informed lens or framework, we kind of go into every interaction with people with that in mind. We don't know what this person has been through. We don't know what type of adversity this person has experienced. So we kind of think about it like that. And 
We also know that trauma can change the way we react in situations. Sometimes it can be a startle response, for example. Sometimes people can be reactive because maybe it's triggering some past experience that they have had. So we want to keep that in mind when we approach patrons as well, because sometimes things can be jarring for people or really triggering for people. And we want to minimize that possibility of potentially triggering people and making sure that we're continuing to provide an inclusive space where everyone feels welcome and safe. To use a trauma-informed lens, you have to be trauma-informed, but a person can never be fully trauma-informed and a library can't either. And can you talk a little bit about why? Becoming trauma-informed is one of those things we'll never fully arrive at. Like Deborah was saying earlier, the human experience is massively complex and people within our communities are ever-changing. So it's something kind of like a lifelong goal or learning process to work towards being trauma-informed. And again, you know, you'll never be fully trauma-informed. And in the field of social work, I think that The meaning of trauma-informed within research, I think we're attempting to kind of make it an evidence-based practice. There is massive amount of literature out there right now and growing every, every single year. I think that that's something too, is because the evidence base of trauma-informed is ever-changing and that's something that is another reason why it's something that's not necessarily something that will ever be fully attained. Just to jump in and piggyback off that remark, Margaret Ann and myself have contributed to this book about what it looks like to be trauma-informed in a library. And I don't think she or I would ever say that we are trauma-informed. And I'm not a trauma-informed person. I strive to be trauma-informed in the same way that we sort of strive to be anti-racist. We we are never fully anti-racist. We can never be fully trauma-informed. It's a a process and a strategy. And I liked what you were saying, Margaret Ann, about the trauma-informed term itself. There's a trauma-informed care model that you'll see in behavioral health. And that's not what we're talking about here. We're really sort of adapting some of those principles into this framework, just so that we're more trauma aware or more able to reflect on trauma as opposed to following a specific trauma-informed care modality. One of the ways to move forward on your quest to understand trauma and how it affects people is the ACEs questionnaire. How does this questionnaire help people not only to understand trauma in themselves, but to see how vast and pervasive childhood trauma is in the world? The acronym stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And then you put a one next to anything that you've experienced, and then it is like graded at the bottom. So if you have a higher number, then you've had more adverse childhood experiences. And things like racism and those kind of accumulative things are included in the ACEs questionnaire. If you're planning on attending the pre-conference for the PLA annual conference in March of 2022, we will be going over the ACEs questionnaire and even be passing it out as an exercise to do. I think that that's really helpful in our conceptualization of trauma and then approaching patrons in that kind of way. Everyone's been through something. We don't know what this person's been through. How do we navigate that in our interactions with patrons? Getting back to the book, there's five strategies suggested. Reflect, protect, connect, respect, redirect. So the first strategy, which is reflect, is really crucial for us as library workers to think about how the patrons in our community have experienced life. Basically reflect 
F, to consider what biases people go through. So what stereotypes we have, what historical issues have come up. And so people of color have experienced just incredible amounts of racism. And so when we use Reflect, we're asking library staff to think about how has the library treated people of color in the past? And, you know, we're, we're reckoning with the history of libraries being built on white supremacist values and norms. And so when we, we offer Reflect as a tool, it's like asking library staff to really sort of consider how we got here and what has contributed to someone's experience. And so that can look at racism, gender issues, indigenous land rights, how people with disabilities are treated, how people experiencing homelessness are treated, how people living in poverty are treated, and just kind of creating that that framework from which a library staff person can then respond. And so understanding how we got here, sort of what Reflect asks us to do. Protect as a skill is really key for any sort of trauma-informed or trauma-aware response that we might have because safety is absolutely the utmost concern for really all of us in our library spaces, whether we're putting our trauma-informed hat on or not, safety is really key. And so Protect asks us then to consider physical safety and also psychological safety in our spaces. Like Margaret Ann had mentioned before, we want to create environments that make people feel safe and welcomed. And so Protect is really key for that one. Connect is the next skill, and this one I think is among my favorites. How we recover from trauma is most often through healthy connection with other people. And so this is where library staff have a real opportunity to connect with our patrons and build relationship with them and work with them, be friendly. Having a friendly, safe, kind of healthy interaction with another person can help rewire our brains when we've experienced trauma. Because then we can say, oh, wait, not everyone treats me poorly. I have this great relationship with someone at the library. And so not everyone is looking to harm me. And so connect is really a super valuable tool. And it's also the most human thing that we can do when we encounter others in our lives. Margaret Ann, do you want to take us through respect and redirect? So another important key here is respect. You know, we want to use respectful language. We don't want to go into a scenario where coming in with any judgments, people often don't react really well. I'm sure we all know that, you know, having approached patrons in a certain way, starting out just with respect is really key in successful interactions. And then lastly, redirect. So what resources can we offer to this patron? What do we need to make referrals to community providers? Our ability to kind of take all of the steps before, and then it's kind of like our action step. A big piece of it is how do we help the patron have agency? How can we help them make a choice for their lives that isn't us forcing them to do something? And that redirect step is is kind of a broad one, but it's also comprehensive in that it can be, how do we help them stay in the library today? How do we help them connect with the resources that they might need? And it's also how we really reflect on their strengths and, and what they can do and what they want to do for their lives. And social workers, a lot of the time, will talk about autonomy, meaning the ability of a person to decide what happens to them next. So redirect is really where we can try to help provide opportunities for a patron to regain some of their agency in making choices about what happens to them in their lives. Because really when it comes down to it, the only person that can change or have control over their reactions is that person. So those are the five strategies that are used throughout the book to help readers understand how to navigate patron interactions. How can library workers determine whether a behavior is annoying or whether that behavior is dangerous. Margaret, Anne? 
as social workers, we know that people who are experiencing serious and persistent mental illness or symptoms of delusions or responding to internal stimuli, like talking to yourself, isn't a predictor of violence at all. People who have serious and persistent mental illness are more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators of violence. So I think that just to take even that a step forward, I think that there is that stigma of like, what are we going to do with this person because they're having a mental health episode? But again, like from our perspectives as social workers, it's like, is it harm to self or others? And of course, there's a lot of gray area within that as well. But once it becomes something where someone's yelling at somebody else, then that crosses that line. But just someone having that experience in general doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to result violently or that it's going to escalate or anything like that. So what we're really asking library staff to consider is the impact of the behaviors that we encounter. If the impact is that it's dangerous, like Margaret Ann said about crossing a line, then absolutely there are a series of processes that we likely need to jump into. And we can still address those in a trauma-informed manner. And we know that there's stuff that's just frustrating, annoying, and we don't like it at the library but we want to allow people to be who they are. And sometimes that means behaving differently than, than we might in our own homes or if we were to go to the library. It doesn't mean it's wrong, just that it's different. In the book, we talk about de-escalation. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of de-escalation and pre-escalation? De-escalation is a response to something that's already happening. If there's already a situation going on where someone is yelling or there's some potential for violence, we use a set of skills to help bring that escalated issue back down to something that we can tolerate in the library to keep an escalated situation from happening. There's a lot that library staff can do in that pre-escalation area, which is before an issue even develops. And so part of that is using a lot of the, the principles that we talk about in the book of connecting with our patrons and building relationship with them, making sure that we have safe environments for our library patrons to be in, and for staff to be paying attention and, and see if they're are ways that they can intervene in an issue before it becomes an incident. And so there's really no ceiling for de-escalation training. And so what we offer is just kind of a, a taste of different skills that can be used. If we're considering our trauma-informed approaches in the library, that can really do a lot to even prevent you from needing to use de-escalation or crisis response skills themselves. How can the language we use help us to navigate patron interactions? Oftentimes in social work, we really encourage the use of person-first language where we say, for example, instead of, oh, that person is homeless, saying this is someone who's experiencing homelessness or housing insecurity, because it takes away the stigma and the kind of othering of that, and also the identity of it too. Just because someone's experiencing something doesn't mean that that makes them who they are. Language is really important, and even when we talk amongst ourselves about a population or people in general, I think that it's important to have that kind of rhetoric and humanize people's experiences more. But then also in interacting with patrons too, language is very important. What exactly we say, our tone of voice that we use, our body language, we do go over that in the book. Because if we are using kind of judgmental and, you know, not person-focused language in our conversations, maybe just among ourselves as staff people, we're setting the tone for how our library thinks about the people that we serve. And so it is really key to be mindful about the words that we use, because in addition to showing the values that we have, it also trains us to think in the ways that we do. And so if we use words like homeless, addict, 
alcoholic, what have you, then we start to fall into that othering mindset where like these people are different from us. And even these people, anytime I hear myself say that, these people in quotes is like, well, they're different. They're like less than. We do want to be mindful of our language because it trains our own brains in how to think. And then obviously that, that will come out when we're working with our patrons as well. And just one more quick thing, practicing language is something, you know, we're not always just born with this ability to be like, okay, we're using person first language 100% of the time. And we're saying everything completely correctly and accurate all the time. No, it takes a lot of practice and ongoing reflection as well. How did I frame this? Did I say this correctly? Is, Is there a different way that I could have said this? Having that ability to kind of think back is a really big piece of practicing language. Let's talk a little bit about self-care. Why is self-care important? Specifically with those of us who are more frontline workers, you know, library staff, interacting with patrons every day, you're at the center of your community. You see a lot. Sometimes there's burnout. Sometimes we feel overwhelmed. Sometimes we even witness something traumatic ourselves that happens in the library. And then it's really important to avoid burnout or compassion fatigue as well. To combat that is by utilizing self-care. Everyone's self-care looks totally different. The book walks the reader through 13 scenarios and provides advice for navigating them. They are mental health challenges, sleeping at the library, strong personal odor, personal belongings, suspected intoxication slash under the influence, substance use, threatening verbal and nonverbal behavior, unsheltered teens, adult self-neglect, child abuse slash or assault, solicitation or panhandling, stealing, and child unattended after closing. Those are listed in the book and advice is provided for navigating those. Also, the pre-conference program, which will be held at uh, PLA 2022 in March, will be working through these scenarios as well. You can get more information about the pre-conference and everybody who registers for the pre-conference also receives a copy of the book at placonference.org. Deborah, did you have any last thoughts you want to share? I think what I would want to leave our listeners with today is the idea that this workbook and this podcast and the pre-conference talks about trauma and adversity and a lot of really bad things that can happen. But by engaging with this material, it's really ultimately very hopeful. And we're trying to provide skills for how we can be resilient. We do this work digging into trauma-informed lens and framework because we're ultimately trying to help our communities heal. And so I just thank everyone for participating with us in that big journey. It's a big task. And I'm, I'm grateful that the library systems across the country are looking to this information more. Thank you both. That was Deborah Walsh-Kane and Margaret Ann Powell, both licensed clinical social workers practicing at public libraries and members of the PLA Social Work Task Force. Thanks for listening. Thank you.